So welcome to It's Not All About The Numbers, the leadership podcast that is not all about the numbers. Uh, my name is Chris and that is Mike. Hey everyone. And this is Matt Buck, Director of Drawnalism. Hi Matt. Hello Chris, hello Mike. And I am so pleased I got that right because I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to say Darwinism because it looks like it in my brain. Um, you're nodding there. We found um, very early in our life that people didn't know exactly what we did and that was one of our very first big business pains. So we chose to invent a word that described somewhat what we did. So how's everybody's week been? The last few weeks have been pretty manic. This week has been a quieter week. Uh, I've been working on a project looking at a data platform and the politics around that has been fascinating and interesting. And I've spent a bit of time following up with a few people on some things, which I think other people call business development. Um, but I, in, in that, I managed to go to South Wales for a couple of days. And in that trip, I managed to catch up with somebody, actually, Matt, that you know well, um, Alex Coley, who I used to work with at DEFRA. Yeah. Uh, and we spent an evening chatting over old times and the uh, the, the things that, uh, that interest us around politics and the political machinations of the world. So it's been an interesting kind of like slightly quieter worky week, quite a lot of good positive downtime week. Sounds great. And Matt, how about yourself? What have you been up to? Uh, it's been uh, a very busy period, actually. Um, some work, obviously, of course, um, but also I'm doing some personal uh, development training at the moment, which is lovely and a luxury and also, you know, uh, a burden uh, at the same time because you have to make the extra time for it. And just yeah. as to close on that, uh, a, a particular business meeting, uh, I was given a plant at the end of it, which was both uh, unexpected and rather charming. Uh, but it was a really great way, simple way of planting the idea that uh, the relationship needs nurturing. A nice little visual right. aid, I would imagine. That must appeal to you hugely. It did. I'm 100% p- pinching that. 100%. <laughs> That'll be pinched. Oh. What's the What's the course you're doing, Matt? Uh, I'm doing uh, something uh, which is, to its great credit, uh, funded by the government. Uh, help to grow management. Uh, although we're quite a mature business, we've been going for well over 10 years, there are certain times in the business where you realise the change needs to be dynamic. And this is making me think of your very first introductory, it's not all about the numbers podcast, where you were sharing your personal stories. And uh, everyone's got a different reason or trigger point for a transformation or a change and uh, particularly an enduring one and uh, that would be the reason I think. It's funny you say that actually because I think there's a lot of people out there who could do with development when they're kind of later on in their career but they sometimes think oh I shouldn't do that now because I'm too experienced for it or you know what if what if I go on management training and I've been a manager for 10 years it's like you know what what's the you know that what what are everyone going to what's everyone going to think hopefully they'll think well you're going to be a better manager <laughs> rather than you know what an idiot he's been for the last 10 years on on my week i uh, wasn't really able to do any personal development this week i was i was far too busy on um planning out a lot of content for what we do um on the gen cfo side had uh, some great workshops with the team about uh what was most um, interesting? What was most kind of uh, appealing to the to the academy audience that we had? We, that's helping us develop an awful lot of content um, for next year, which was great. I also sort of externally had a 
had a, a board meeting um, as a trustee. I'm on a remuneration committee for a, a very large charity. And uh, that was quite interesting because it's the first time I've done it. And there was an awful lot of updating of sort of employment data and and trends for next year. And it's great to kind of have that from from experts rather than trying to sort of make it up as you go along. Um, especially even as a small business, you know, it's good to get an insight into what, you know, the percentage pay rises might be next year or how unhappy generally the workforce is and you can sort of gauge it for yourself. So, um, so yeah, that was, that was my week. So it sounds like we had a very productive week, which was fantastic, but I'm, I'm curious about you guys, right? Because you, you, this first time I've met you, Matt, but you guys have known each other for a while. So just to introduce that. So I, I asked Matt to come on the podcast after, after we've done a few, because I think exactly as you said in the introduction, Matt brings a different perspective. But I thought it's worth, might be worth sharing how we first met. Um, and it, it was back in the days when I worked at DEFRA. So probably eight, eight-ish years ago now, a bit longer, maybe a bit longer than that. Um, and we were working on a project in DEFRA, which effectively was to try and influence cultural change and release a whole ho- heap of data that had previously been locked away as uh, data, open data that anyone could use. And one of the things that I had found through other jobs and other other experiences that, that, that I'd had is quite often you draw something out uh, on a PowerPoint to kind of illustrate what a future state model might look like or a future state organizational approach might look like but having worked with it department in an it department before and working in an it department in defra i was worried that what would happen is once you drew it as a kind of wireframe with arrows people think they can take away stuff and then just build it and say oh yeah yeah that box is one of these this box is one of those and that's how it flows together so in terms of communicating the culture change that we were trying to get in DEFRA. I worked with Matt and we, I mean, we spent quite a lot of time together sort of chatting through what we were trying to do. And the idea was that Matt would illustrate the change in a way which could not be built. So you you wouldn't be able to pass it in front of an IT person and they say, oh yeah, that's a platform. I'll just build you one of them. It, It would look compelling to the people who needed to understand what we were trying to achieve but it would also look impossible to build as a it solution and that, that's kind of where it started and when when i sort of came to you and we started having those conversations what was it that sort of intrigued you or, or sort of excited you about that piece of work that, that we had there i mean obviously there was the relative you know prestige of, of what you were trying to do i think frankly the the difficulty of what you you were doing uh cultural change behavioral change is a hard thing and it's particularly hard inside technology in which i'd had some experience in my previous career in in journalism what i remember most about the project is less the drawing i remember the events and i remember the things that grew out of it around engagement and particularly there was one tiny thing that popped up completely by accident the the defra selfie it was the age of the (laughs) smartphone it was just coming and it went viral, at least inside yeah. DEFRA. And it and it built engagement into that piece that you've just spoken about, Mike, that cultural change and the idea of translating, which I I, I understand about you and your your work experience. And I think that probably that's what I took really took away. It's very rarely one thing. 
what was the uh, what was the death for selfie? I've got pictures of uh, large nosed cows in uh, <laughs> being pushed forward. What, what? So well, so so that so there was a series of storyboards that Matt, Matt drew out, and one of them was a picture because we were talking about looking at death for ourselves. So he drew a picture of somebody holding up a smartphone, taking a picture of themselves, and just put at the bottom hashtag death for selfie. Talk about government departments, and they're just like a monolith thing that people don't really understand so we took the um approach of using twitter as it was called back then back in the day um and using the death for selfie hashtag to get to start taking pictures of ourselves at work in you know it's like we're here pick picture death for selfie and so the team started doing it but what got traction was we ended up it ended up with ministers doing death for selfies um, the permanent secretary was doing death for selfies and posting pictures of you know where they were, what they were doing, and, and it started to show the people that worked within DEFRA and the the breadth of the work. So when we were engaging around data and data sharing, people started to understand actually this isn't all that DEFRA do. So whilst this might be my my single point of engagement with the organisation, they've started to show me this breadth of stuff that they do, and it, it was very interesting because it was tiny. In, in quite a large project and quite a lot of drawing. And, and that was the nugget that helped unlock people's attention it, on a really serious programme of transformation involving vast sums of money, endless time, lots of resources of, of human time, not so much money perhaps, but but it but it was it was a real learning experience. Well what did it show people though? Was it that you know people were bought into it or was it about creating momentum or su- support for what you were doing publicly or all, all, all of the above and okay. it was it's it, it, so it all of that but also the human face of it so it's quite easy to point at an organization and say oh those buggers in that organization blah, 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 blah. but actually when you see the people and actually see oh no actually it's mike he's all right you know i can see that he walks the dogs and whilst he's whilst he's out and about and what he's thinking about stuff actually it personalizes the project it makes the work that you're trying to do seem more human and given all of you know it was all about communication it was all about engagement and communication to try and persuade people to do things differently by role modeling something slightly different and this openness so this openness in sharing who you were and what you were doing mirrored the openness that was needed in sharing the data that you were in control of and and that that came through in spades we we were talking to rachel harris last week who uses social media huge amount and we asked her whether you know it was a professional thing to do you know the whole use of social media and it sounds like this is a great example of of how it is an enabler and actually social media is probably part of everybody's job um and if you can show support and and use it in this way then it's a real power for good but this was eight years ago as well and government so I, I, i don't know why am i surprised that this happened it was definitely a risky activity, or it was seen as a risky activity. But the, I, I suppose that this is one of those things that that needs to be looked at a little bit. Is so all civil servants have to abide by the civil service code. So there are a set of rules of what you can and can't do and say, and some of that is about you, you can't criticise the government, for example, because part of your job as a civil servant is to be impartial. So those rules about what you can and can't say in public exist. And civil servants, by and large, 
are absolutely brilliant at abiding by the civil service code. So we just said that those are the rules that we're going to follow. So yes, we might be talking about the work that we do in public, but we'll be following the rules that have been set and we won't do anything ridiculous. I mean, within this project, one of the things I'm actually personally most proud of is we managed to run uh, an event at the Ordnance Survey, which was both internal and external. So with public sector representation, but with private companies involved. Matt did a lot of the work on the, the, the graphics for it, had logos and stuff. We'd had it all planned for months. And Theresa May called an election back in back then. And when she called an election, what usually happens is government shuts down and can't do any external activities. And we got permission from the PermSec then that we could continue on and run our event in that period where the government's not, you know, the civil service aren't supposed to, you know, traditionally don't do anything, following the civil service code about impartiality, making sure that all of the people, public and private, uh, complied by the rules to not say anything about it in public. And we had that event and ran that event over two days in Southampton, and it was amazing. That hybrid nature, the inside and outside view, and the ability to do both, I think comes right back to where Mike started with that piece about the original work we did inside DEFRA, where there were there were IT charts all over the place with good reason. Um, but finding a way to put that together with the humanization. And um that's pretty much what journalism does. It exists for knowledge knowledge transfer. And uh, we were extremely lucky to have the experience. And you know, moving on to 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 Matt and and what you do a little bit more, because it, it sounds like, you know, when you work together, what you did was really important to that sort of messaging and understanding and communication and you know i experienced this myself like a, a week ago with the academy when um mike asked you to join as a co-host and your response was to actually listen to the first episode and to draw what you heard um you know how did you go about producing that the first thing was uh it was a clear purpose uh and i think pretty much the first thing i drew was what your purpose was um, you know, you've got a transforming generation of chief financial officers, you know, because of digital change, context. So the story was natural. You follow that. And then you, you've got the individual purpose, you, your own Chris and and, uh, and and Mike's and how they actually work together. Hybrid again, um, you know, in, in this particular context. After that, it's much simpler in a way and more interesting because we got your personal story. You know, I started in finance. I wasn't all that keen. It was a paraphrase, but you, you know, and it's true. It's true. And over time, it changes. Yeah. Um, so that's a pleasure. If if you aren't interested in people in a people business, then you're going to be in you know a difficult position. So recorded your story, recorded Mike's. Um, he 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 keeps some things very dark because I learned a few things. Um, and and obviously the the, the time where I got to know the Mike, you know, best part of the decade ago. And then you you finished off beautifully with really talking about purpose going forward. And so the structure was nice and I had time. Um, very often if we're recording live, if I was recording this conversation live, uh, things would be very fast and very sketchy. So my hands are off again. When you say recording, you're, you're drawing, right? So, yeah. in, you know, you're, you're creating a record of what's being said. How, how important is this, the story in it? Um, yes, typically um, you, you're forced to make spatial decisions if you like if you're thinking about a piece of paper or a digital screen or whatever very very quickly people look at us and say oh drawing or journalism even um actually it's a process of spatial awareness dynamic change uh and most importantly of all active listening 
and I think just sort of just pick it, picking in on that. So the thing that I've always found as well is, so you do the active listening and record it, but actually the the processing that you're doing as well. So we talked about that drawing, the 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 it's not all like the numbers drawing a week or so ago, and the thing that really resonated with me was your an- analysis of Chris and mine's different stories. And you, I don't know if you remember, you said about Chris's story. Yeah, you know, it, it was like a journey, but then there was a moment, like a trigger moment of crisis that the, the fraud which made you make a decision and then you your reflection on my journey which, which was and your words I think were you're very much more following your nose all the way through it and, and that's how it's my my career has felt and I, I, I did play that back to you Chris and and that seems right and yeah th- that's the bit that's always intrigued me about the the work that you do Matt is is not only are you recording it, you're, you've got this kind of like privilege of analysing it in a really different way and you see things in a way that I just don't. And I, I really love that. I, it, it is a privilege. And when we work on longer projects, like some of the ones we've done subsequently, there's an opportunity to deliver a lot more value from that because it often unpacks some of the challenges that transformation change brings and, you know, which have shown up in some of your early podcasts. I, you know, I I love it. I love what you, you do. And um I think it's really helpful. I suppose trying to talk to some of the leaders that are listening, you know, how can they, this this isn't meant to be a sales pitch, by the way, but I mean, like, how can they use this? Because, you know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about storytelling and communication and being authentic as a leader. It seems to operate in that space around, you know, messaging. Yeah. One of the, the great revelations really has been the, inevitably the, the the sheer sheer variety um the uh in the early days when we were working mainly at events and very specifically event focused we were working a lot on paper and things like death for selfie and and all that could could be very effective hashtags the, the social media wave that's changed over time we do a lot more work now in longer term transformation projects very often there's a series of processes which are hybrid by their nature There'll be a gathering phase um, where perhaps you're engaging with customers in the way that you would be with your masterclasses or your own teams. Uh, and we'll perhaps we'll be recording that live. Um, then there'll be some outcomes which will perhaps help to synthesize further in more depth, higher quality. Um, for, for But the, the important thing about it is it's a living process. It's part of it, you know, um, if it's dead, if it's a static thing, like a, a plan for an IT transformation without involving people, you're not going to engage. And if the change is mission critical. So, so do you think in, in that scenario that you just described and, and thinking about Chris's question about this, the sort of senior leaders and stories and stuff like that, do you think that the process as well as the output so that is, is, a, is like a, a learning thing? Yes, is the short answer. The longer answer is when you're going through a communication revolution like the one we're still in and with AI here now and liable to do things quite as transitional as the internet and the um, the social media wave and all of it, we were all managing in an age of uncertainty, always. Our, our, our most important asset as a, as a business tool is um, the ability for active listening in context with the ability to then analyze or challenge this sort of takes you back to one of the comments in previous episodes around, and you made a great observation. I think when one of our award winners was talking about the application process, 
being actually really quite cathartic for the team and actually having it as a team exercise. And, you know, you could look at sort of applying for an award as just a process, or you could see it, I think what you were saying was actually, if you ran that as a team, if you brought the people into that equation, then it's actually, you know, a celebration of the team and almost like the application form is is just a nice to have. If it feels a bit similar here, it's like you're by by doing these sorts of exercises, you are bringing people into the equation. I think that there's there's multiple um, multiple benefits. So you've got the process of creation. So um, one of the places where I've seen Matt work is at um, Open Data Camp. So that's an unconference, and Matt and team capture the conversations that are going on as they're going on. So effectively, there's a team of people talking about a topic that they've chosen themselves, and it's getting captured. So what you get is, in the art that comes out at the end, the key points as interpreted by Matt and team, um, in a way which is engaging, that you can take away and almost that's a celebration of the event right there. It's a celebration that you've had those those good conversations. So you could do exactly the same thing within a team or within an organization, for sure. Um, with with some of the work done for DEFRA, not only did we do the, the oh, I say we, not only did we do the stuff <laughs> um, that, that we were talking about there, the, the, the sort of like the hard copy slow form, but we did do some unconference type activities as well that, that the event in Southampton had an element of that. And the, the, the most engaging thing post-event was having that art up around the building in DEFRA and people seeing people look at it. Because you could then start having a conversation with the person you saw looking at it about that thing. Quite often in, a tra- in finance transformation, digital transformation, you get sucked into jargon really quickly. Yeah. And the jargon becomes really unengaging. And if you don't understand it, you get basically you get cut out of the conversation. The beauty of this is there's something visual there that brings you together. So you're having a conversation about something which you you can both interpret. So it almost it's that unlocker of of, of a conversation that that sometimes you don't get when you're locked into a, a you know a, a, an expert jargon rich silo. And it's it's brilliant works, which kind of leads me on to this question to, to you, Matt, specifically. It's like why 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 do you do what you do? Um, you know, I hear you've been, you've had to change your business recently. You've been used, you've been working in the EU a bit as well. Um, if I went right back to the beginning, it was because it was drawing was a great way of uh, understanding the world and it still holds true now. So it's always been a purpose led business in our, in our earlier careers. And certainly for myself, uh, when I was using drawing, I was using it for singular purpose, typically for publication, for gratification to to educate perhaps to amuse perhaps to shock all kinds of reasons so is it fair to say that you started off doing sort of dilberts and now now you've moved up to higher ground or were you never in that sort of uh world uh mike mike will tell you i'm sure uh some of my stuff was a lot ruder than dilbert and you know you you i'm curious about the work that you're doing in in europe at the moment because um you know i've worked across europe i've worked across the globe and have you noticed any sort of cultural differences when you're doing this work? Obviously, you know, you've done a lot in the UK, but do, 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 is it universally kind of understood and accepted as, a, it's, as an it's, important it's a, thing to do? It's a very sharp question. It's a very interesting question. Um, when I was younger, when we were younger um, in our trade, um, 
there was always a perception uh, that near Europe or continental Europe was much friendlier to uh, drawing as a as a tool for humor, jokes, satire, all the all the things, and also much broader things, um, bon dessiné in, in in French um, comics. Uh, but more importantly, that also um, the exchange of information. So yeah, you, you're absolutely on it, and 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 it's a much more welcoming culture to it. Interestingly, my colleague Alex is working uh, this very weekend in the in Brussels uh, in the uh, Museum of Comic Art, which if you're ever in Brussels, don't miss. It's marvellous in a splendid old Art Deco building. Of some of our very first proper customers, even before uh, I met Mike, I think, were the cross-border, interestingly, programmes of the European Union. Um, very much about stitching together or helping people stitch together things that had been rent asunder or broken um in in different ways over time well i, I feel like you set me up there because it's not all about the numbers matt is it <laughs> <laughs> nicely finished yeah thank you so um really interesting really interesting um and you know if anybody would like to um come on as a speaker or ask questions um on the podcast we would be happy to ask those questions to the audience and try and answer them ourselves. Um, so if you send an email to podcast at generationcfo.com or reach out to Mark, Mike or myself uh, on LinkedIn, then we'll bring questions in. We had the Academy the other week and I tried to find a question that was linked. And this is a genuine question from the Academy. And it was finance and business speak different languages. <laughs> What should we do? Question mark. What do we do? How do we go about it? Mike, I'll come to you first. Then Matt, maybe you can sprinkle some Dilbert magic. The thing that immediately goes through my head is is over communicate. Um, I, I've had a had a couple of conversations this week with people, and they're non technical people working in a technical environment, and they've said, "Well, I don't really understand what's you know, I don't really understand the stuff that's going on over there, but it's fine because I'm doing my bit over here." And it's like, no, you're part of the same project team, part of the same project, actually it's fundamentally important you understand what's going on over there and what's going on over here. And I think this question is leading to the same kind of thing, which is if you're in a business, you, you kind of need to understand what's being done in the business, right? So actually it's everybody's job to be able to communicate with each other. So I need to be able to tell you what I'm doing in my expert area in a way that you can understand and vice versa. And I think that that, that for me is the, the key bit is if you don't understand ask, and creating a culture where asking because you don't understand is okay. Um, we've, I've said, uh, you know, using my catchphrase again, which I'm not allowed to use because of Ivanka, you know, that I'm not an accountant. Working with you, Chris, there's so many times I don't really understand the conversation if it goes technical finance. But I ask, I just say, oh, I don't get that. I, I've learned to ask. So that would be my advice, ask. We recently did a series of workshops for an investment bank and they had all of these challenges particularly having challenges with the staff retention and a lot of that is based around traditional models of working which are quite siloed and not having any horizontal knowledge of the, the business but the cultural piece is massively underestimated uh, in terms of contextual understanding and they did it through stories people from each department were telling a story and it wouldn't be complicated, not too much jargon. I, I think that I just just to draw one one bit out that you just said there, Matt, which is that the continual loop. Yeah, it, it doesn't end. 
you have to keep talking and listening and talking and listening and, and creating those kind of roots. And if you don't, if you don't carry on, then the silos reinforce themselves. We're, we're going to move on to good data, bad data. So this is something that we do every week just to sort of fly through some, some good, good data that we found, some bad data that we found. And uh, the first one's quite an interesting one. Um, and uh, that we could go down a whole rabbit hole on this one, um, particularly with Matt on on this episode. But I've put this into good data. Um, McKinsey have basically said that the whole world's gone mad for Gen AI, and the they are estimating the Gen AI economy is going to be somewhere between two point six trillion dollars and four point four trillion dollars annually um, across sixty three use cases that they've come up with. Um, and just to put that into perspective, that is about the size of the UK GDP in 2021. So um, it's almost like this whole economy and enterprise is popping up out of nowhere. I put that in good data, but Matt, I've got to ask as you're on, like, what what's your take as someone who's in that creative industry on, on Gen AI? It's here. Uh, there's no getting away from it. People will everyone thinks it's going to make their life easier because it's going to be faster. Uh, and in many ways, it will be easier because things can be go faster. But speed kills as well. Uh, and there will be other areas and things that won't, won't benefit from it at all. Um, and I'm thinking beyond probably the subject of this, yeah. particularly in terms of misinformation, disinformation. Yeah. It, it's uh, you, You've seen already you know, perfect um, audio fakes of uh, people's voices. So we talked about this a little bit on previous episodes where people have won awards, digital fine art awards based by using Gen AI and yep. is it yep. seen as cheating? And I think Mike was talking about Keir Starmer um, yep. and how he was he was deep faked recently. Yep. Well, there was, there was so, one there was one this just this past weekend and it was Sadiq Khan was deep faked. That's right. um, in advance of the um the, yeah. the stuff going on at the senator it was yeah, yeah. Um, and I it was saw... funny i i was talking to i was talking on a podcast uh last week um called what another podcast hang on somewhere <laughs> someone else is yeah we're all a family we're all a family <laughs> um grassroots podcasting and funnily enough he picked up on the point that you made i basically said something like look if you're competing on speed the gen ai is always gonna win right yeah. And and you just said it lovely there, you know, speed kills. Um, and it's it, you can't you, you can't compete on speed. So what is the juice, the magic humanness that you're bringing? Mike, so I saw, yeah, no, I saw because I, I saw a quote around this, um, which was a Deloitte survey. And it's it said the Deloitte surveys that 79 percent of CEOs believe Gen AI will increase efficiencies and 52 percent believe it will increase growth opportunities is a quote from a Deloitte report this summer. Um, and what went through my head when I read that quote, and it's kind of underpinned a little bit, is I wonder if we even know what we mean by Gen AI and how it's going to it's going to impact. So a CEO saying, "Yeah, it'll increase efficiencies," they've got no clue. We've got no clue what's coming and how it's coming. Just seeing what's happened in the last twelve months, and I think that to, to the point, it's almost like we can leap in straight away, or we just look, watch, observe, and onboard gen ai in a in a more kind of like deliberative manner and i think that's the bit for me it's being deliberative and making conscious decisions not accidental decisions about how to deploy some of this stuff 
I think what we're here, seeing here is that good data, bad data, there's two sides to every statement yes. here. Yeah. <laughs> because like you say, Mike, you know, some people might be very pro uh, all of this development. And, you know, I, the other good data that I highlighted was similar CFO survey from Deloitte saying that 86% of CFOs we're reporting that they under, their understanding of AI and its uses has increased, right? So it's like, but what does that mean? You know, yeah. and, you know, that 54% are optimistic about using it to improve business performance. Okay, but what does that mean? The, I think one of the biggest problems that we got here is there isn't a common language, right? Which kind of goes back to your point around finding one. Bad data. Yeah, I, I I saw a thing in the Guardian, um, and you'd have seen it. It was in the media around a company called Biobank who have been gathering our data, data on us that people have agreed to provide um, for uh, medical research. So it's basically GP type data that have been provided in for medical research. And there's a bit of a scandal because it's been revealed that between 2020 and 2023, they've been selling access to this data to insurance companies. Um, and there's kind of, it, 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 I immediately went down a um, a path from my background in life data licensing and stuff like that. And for me, this is a real story about the small print. So people assume when you provide data for research that that's a non-commercial public good. Yeah, you can do research, but actually there's a whole heap of companies that do research and insurance companies do do research. So basically, whilst the story is a scandal, Actually, everybody had given permission for Biobank to do what they did because they were selling data to insurance companies for the insurance companies to do research, um, which may not have been what was intended, but it certainly was permit- seemed to be permitted in the small print. Did I did I see that the um, it was a very old story? The data this had been happening for for years. It wasn't just yeah. recent since two thousand and six, as far back as that. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't pick up that date, but it definitely seem, didn't seem to be new news for sure. Yeah. Um, it, it's just very much, uh, yeah. It, I remember back in the environment agency, we had these debates about, yeah, yeah, when we were still selling data for reuse, it was very much okay. So you can use it free for non-commercial use, but you have to pay for it if you're doing commercial things. How do you make that distinction? How do you make the distinction, the true distinction between commercial and non-commercial? Is it by organisation? Is it by activity? It, it, it's very difficult. And I think this is a case in point. Excellent. Well, a great debate. And uh, we're still yet to find a, a ton of good data to balance out the bad data. Um, and it seems like all the good data has got two sides to it. So uh, we'll we'll keep working. But um, it's been great to see that uh, some of the audience actually who've been listening have been hashtagging good and bad data so if you find any good data or if you find any bad data then why don't you um hashtag it with good data bad data and send it on to mike and me or um podcast at generationcfo.com if you're uh that way inclined as well but look um matt it's been really interesting to, to talk to you i think your work is fantastic i think there's so much to it as well I, I which i didn't first appreciate if i'm being really honest i i've been in workshops in the past where someone has provided something like this um but it's the use of it and it's the it's the further use of it and it's taking people on a journey that seems to be super important um so thank you for being 
part of this today. And where can people find you, Matt? Uh, we live online at Journalism, so just like uh, Jen's CFO. Excellent. So if you put in Journalism, which is D-R-A-W-N-A-L-I-S-M, not Darwinism. Beautifully <laughs> pronounced. You will find it, and it's Matt Buck. So, Mike, thanks again. And Thank you, we'll Chris. see you next time. And remember, it's not all about the numbers. Mm-hmm.